This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, good morning. You are listening to The Morning Run. It's Monday, the 25th of April, 6 in the morning. I'm Shazana Mokhtar with Wong Xiaoning and... Philip C. Bonjour. Bonjour, indeed, indeed. And you are, of course, reacting to overnight news that Emmanuel Macron has won the French election for a second yeah. term. Avoir Le Pen. <laughs> Was she ever I, I don't think so. I don't think it'll be au revoir for her. She's going to come back, you know, with a vengeance in five years' time. I have Did a you suspicion. know that she's actually tried to run for president three times now? Yes, yes. But so, this is the closest she's got to. That's true. It know. wasn't quite third time that third time's the charm. Maybe a fourth time? Well, Maybe you the know, she loves time. cats. I don't know. I, I, I think Europe is just probably like, phew, thank God. Breathing thank a huge God. sigh yeah, of relief. Because it would have it really be... changed the dynamics in the European Union, right, yeah. if she had won. Continuity in France seems to be the case. We are going to be discussing this later on at 7.30. We're going to get reactions to the outcome of the French presidential elections with Professor Peter McPhee of the University of Melbourne. So stay tuned for that analysis. But bringing us closer to home at 7.15, we discuss the 9 billion ringgit literal combat ship procurement saga with defence analyst Ridzwan Ramat of James, the defence intelligence information service. You know, this contract has been ding-donging for so long. It is such a curious case. Nine billion ringgit uh, to produce six literal combat ships and nary a trace of the ship. Well, there's a tiny bit of a trace of the ship, but yeah. the ships have not materialized 60% done only, I think, in the report. Of one ship. Of one ship, right. <laughs> and, so it's ironic. Um, by the way, this nine billion price tag may not be the final price tag. Uh, I, I, don't dis- <laughs> I don't dispute that. And, you know, very interesting. I mean, sorry, we digress. But when I listen to, you know, our defense ministers talk, it's all about vendor procurement. That's right. That's right. And we're going to talk more about that, as you said, at 7.15. And what do we have at 7.45? At 7.45, we're going to be talking about the implications of Malaysia's, excuse me, Malaysia's shrinking population. And we're going to be discussing it with Dr. Lee Ho. Huan of the ISIS Yusuf Ishak Institute. And I think this is interesting because we can actually visually see these numbers decreasing. And what does it mean from a social and also economic perspective? That's right. It comes to the back of data from DOSM. That's the Department of Statistics Malaysia that shows just this very particular trend. We're going to discuss what that means. I will have all this and more today on The Morning Run. So you're going to want to stick with us, BFM 89.9. That was Wizard with See My Baby Jive. I do wonder if they performed at the Yule Ball in Harry Potter. I'm Shazana Mokhtar, <laughs> together with Philip C. and Wong Xiaoning. We're the morning run. It's 6.08 in the morning on Monday, the 25th of April. Yeah, Shazana, your mind moves in mysterious ways. Yes. Never mind. Definitely. Indeed, indeed. I had visions of that jiggly baby. Remember at one time there was on Ellie McBeal, was it, where the baby appeared? And yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It's borderline irritating, I have to say. As an old uncle, I found it really irritating seeing that baby on Ellie McBeal. But first again, why was I watching Ellie McBeal? That's not the point. Sorry, Charles, we digress the again. The fact that we t- that we mentioned Ali McBeal as a reference, I suppose, divulges what kind of generation <sighs> we in the room are from. But in any case, we are turning our attention to the first story of the day that we're going to be talking about. And that's this article in The Atlantic. So if you're on a quest for happiness, The Atlantic compiled a list of 10 practical ways to help you on your journey. Now, this list is backed by scientific research and rated for effectiveness as well as feasibility, meaning that these are things that we can all do to feel happier. It doesn't require some 
Does it require a lot of money or ma- magical feats of doing? No, this is very practical. I'm disappointed. You mean it's attainable happiness? <laughs> well, you know this article, how to you know was basically written by Arthur Brooks. It's part of a bigger column, how to build a life. Now, Arthur Brooks actually has written extensively on happiness. I even listened to his podcast uh, last week with Oprah on his latest book, Strength to Strength. It's, so it's very interesting. There's this whole discussion about what does it take to be happy. And mm. and what I think struck me with this article is that it's a list, right, of what you need to do. I think for me, in the end, it just goes to show that to basically work towards happiness, you have to work at it. Mm. You just can't let it happen to you. It all takes effort. I think what I took away from the article, though, was that the, um, like you said, we pre- it's something that we have to work at. But another thing is, the things that we do, it's actually very simple uh, things. It's nothing, it's not rocket science, you know. If we go through the list, I mean, 10, 10 is not that much. And if you think about it, the first uh, on the list, for example, is invest in family and friends. Um, the second on the list is join a club. So this is really talking about building that social network around you yeah. of support, you know. And that's something that we can all that we can all take simple steps to do. It's not something that we need to invest ten thousand ringgit in order to get a certificate to do it. It's it's really already there. Yeah, but I think it's it's. The list makes it simple, but I'm going to be the Debbie Downer because that's what you called me this morning, right, Philip? Yeah, Debbie. Debbie. And I find this list, it's very practical. It has a lot of common sense tips. But in it itself, it may not be a solution to everything. So, for example, right, um, invest in family and friends. And then let's say during this COVID period, if you really truly are alone, you don't have much family, and you by, you're by nature very introverted. It's not that easy, you know, to come out of your shell and say, I'm going to join a club. I'm going to invest in family and friends. Uh, You do need to take that very big step. And yes, you probably know it, but how do you overcome your fears of that? And and, you know, my my biggest issue, I mean, just building on this thought, right, is you put all this work in, but Mm. why do you put the work in? And so then it leads to the broader philosophical question about why do you want to be happy? Why? What is happiness to you? And if you're thinking about your personal happiness, you'll never really attain it to yes. a certain extent. So this list, right, realistically only works for people who have already made that conscious decision that they indeed want to be happy, that they are going to take some practical steps towards it and they realise that there's a gap in their life and it's something that they must take back for themselves and not expect other people to make them happy. Yeah, so I think this is where the my, my debate is whether you need to be working towards consciously trying to be happy, whether there has to be that consciousness or whether you just have to accept that life is all full of, you know, a mixture of many emotions of happiness, sadness and such. And I think as we progress and we reflect and learn, perhaps that's where we ultimately realise and chance upon it as opposed to work towards it. That's also something I was debating as, as well. Yeah, but do you know that over the weekend I read a similar article which was, I think if I'm not wrong, from The Guardian or from The Financial Times, which is also to say to embrace things like fear and loneliness. Mm. So it's not just about just being one track, which is yeah. happy, but embracing how you feel and adjusting your, your mindset and your actions towards uh, your emotions. That's true. And so building on this list of recommendations, if you look at it, actually nearly more than half or six of them are very non-work related. Actually, mm-hmm. a majority of them are not work related. And I think that's the biggest challenge in our society. Very much of our happiness is linked to our work. And that I think is the biggest challenge here. You see things like exercise, mental, physical wellness, you know, going out and enjoying nature. Those things 
I think we take for granted that, you know, it's, in, it's separate, but actually it's very key that we must link everything together, that our whole life must be viewed holistically. I'm just curious, out of the 10, right, which one do you think is the most challenging for you to do? And we recommend everybody to look at this list, actually. Um, for me personally, practicing my religion is the hardest. I mean, I'm, I'm a Catholic, I do follow my religion, but the, that, that for me is a bit hard because I always find the tension there for me, honestly. And the investing in family and friends, I also find that sometimes challenging. Because I, I, always, I, I, I always find it hard to understand if I ask for, if I invest in someone, do I expect a return? No, you don't. And that shouldn't be the case. Yeah. So and I it struggle becomes a transaction, that. right? Yes, correct. Which one do you find most uh, difficult, Shazana? I would say probably um, number 10. Socializing <laughs> colleagues. Like, oh, she doesn't like us very much, Philip. <laughs> it's sort of like because of the pandemic, you're the, I see you in work. Do I need to see you outside of work as well? I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, this is where, this is the, I think this, this, this tension here is really about saying that my life is got to be compartmentalized to different pieces, right? I want to look at my work quite uniquely. I have my personal life, which is quite unique. And I know many people adopt that. And I know, but there's also the flip side of other people also saying I have to interact link everything together. Well, tell us what you think. If you've taken a look, uh, look at this list, which uh, what do you think of it? You know, how difficult or easy are the steps there? Do you actually practice any of this in your life? Um, you can WhatsApp us at 018-789-8899 or tweet us at BFM Radio. We're going to come back after these messages with another look at another qualitative topic, uh, sticking to the line of what we just finished talking about, and that what makes a job, uh, what makes a good job good. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. That was Cat Power with Cherokee. You're listening to The Morning Run. It's 6.20 in the morning. I'm Shazana Mokhtar with Wong Xiaoning and Philip C. Now we're turning our attention to the second story on our docket, and this is an article from the New York Times. The U.S. Department of Labor is embarking on a study to determine what makes a job good or bad. It's called the Job Quality Me Measurement, and it's aiming to fill the gap in understanding how workers actually view jobs. So the situation in the U.S. is that jobs are on the rise. They're plentiful. Um, there's, there's no shortage of jobs. Um, but there is a mismatch between um, the availability of jobs and the, I suppose, how workers see mm. them, whether they're yes. actually, um, whether it helps to improve their lives or not. Um, so I thought it was a pretty interesting question to discuss, perhaps in the Malaysian context, in terms of how do we rate uh, whether a job is uh, good or bad? Well, I think this is where it's interesting where you first start off with, do I have a job first? And I think this is what most economists <laughs> think about, right? Take a big step backwards, right? <laughs> Take a big step backwards. Do I have a job first? And then after you get a job, is the job well paid? Are you seeing increase in salary? So we talk about the tight labour markets and that's very much what's driving many of the central bank decision making. But then later we talk about better pay. But even I question whether better pay means that the job is good. That's a very different thing. I feel like for the longest time, a lot of um, popular perception in Malaysia, at least, is that a good job is one that offers security. You get the job and if you, can, if you know you can hold it and there's no risk of you losing it due to the whims of whatever is out there, then that's considered a good job for, uh, for a lot of people. So yeah. job for life kind was the mentality, right? I would think so. Is that's that a generational thing, though, for it, me? I think it very much is. It, it is, be. because I'm so young, it's not part of my generational thought process. So I think, like, for me, it's about being able to grow and learn and to move along. So I think that's something, like, my my forefathers thought about But wasn't, isn't that privilege, though, Philip? Yes, yes, it's a privilege I have. Right, it's not everybody has that privilege, even today. A lot of young people really do need to 
bring home the bread and pay the rent and things like that, I'm right? I'm quite struck about how you say about generational, um, whether that's a generational perception. Because in a way, yes, if I look back to uh, my family, for example, I would definitely think the elder people in my generation, they're very gung-ho about government jobs, for example, mm. joining the civil service. That's a secure job. That's a good job. But if you look at how different generations view things, if you go from um, you know boomers to millennials and Gen Z, you can see millennials and Gen Z doing a lot more job hopping. They, yeah. don't, they don't believe in staying at a job for life. They're like two, three years here, two, three years there. That's better um, to build that experience and build up that pay. It's true. So when you say job for life, I think immediately the first word that comes to mind is stagnation. The first word that comes to my mind is stagnation. Like where where is the where is the ability to build breadth and experience, right? So that is, I think, perhaps my mindset. Whereas my mom, who was a teacher her whole life, she's like, I'm so blessed to have worked full time and you know contributed as a teacher. So very different perspectives overall. But you you also make an interesting point that it's not necessarily a generational thing, but it's also an income level yeah, issue. That some have the privilege to do that. Some really have no choice and yeah, are stuck where they are. I think that's the reality check we do have to have, right? For some people. Uh, let's say they join a bank and they just see themselves at the bank and they can work towards a certain position with the bank. And kudos to them. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. If it's a good company. Yes, that I is think the it goes debate. back to whether at the end of the day, some companies do appreciate their staff and they are happy there and they have nice bosses, they have nice working environments. So I was talking to a friend over the weekend and she works for one of the leading media companies in Malaysia. She said many of the interns stay on to work there for 20 over years. They're just happy. The corporate culture is good. The pay isn't the best, but they feel happy. So it's your definition of happy where the balance of how much they pay makes you okay, yeah. your life is comfortable, and you are you are also content. So then I guess the debate as we take forward, right, is a good job doesn't really need to come from a good company, but what makes a good job could be very highly personal as well. I think that's one of the biggest takeaways I have. So when the US Labour wants to try and do a survey on this, I'm not sure whether it's useful because very much the definition of good comes down to the individual, does yes. it not? And it's also a very subjective question, isn't it? Absolutely. And I I guess one of the ways in which they could make this more uh, objective, uh, objective metric, it reminds me of research by Kazana Research Institute, where they talk about decent work. Um, and the way they define decent work um, is that it should have a number of, of different things. You know, it should have, uh, it should encompass earnings, working hours and occupational safety. So maybe those are just the very basic metrics on what makes a job good without really going into that qualitative aspect of it because we all know it's true what's good for one may not be good for another so i think that's absolutely right that's a threshold i think we assume Isn't that the bare minimum that's the bare minimum exactly the threshold right you need to do to be able to even qualify to sit in the categorization the fact that there are so many jobs that don't offer that occupational safety decent mm. work hours decent uh, decent uh, wages the fact that wages is still the key issue in which so many people judge what a good job is yeah. i think goes to show that hey maybe we don't have that many good jobs so so then the debate here is that look we so for me it's like I think for us we are in a privileged room for to discuss this and many people I think a vast majority that are still struggling but for those who I think have meet those minimum requirements how do we take it to the next level I do think it's a mixture of your passion it's a mixture of the impact you deliver in the job and also your skill set so I think the other thing also companies have to be aware of this it's not just us right it's a both it's a yes. two way transaction isn't it Absolutely. so companies need to be mindful about creating the right environment for their staff and allowing them to grow within the company.
Well, tell us what you think. What makes a good job good for you? You can WhatsApp us at 018-789-8899 or tweet us at BFM Radio. We're heading into the 6.30am News Bulletin and we'll be back after that with a look at global headlines. Here's, uh, here's Kiss with Deuce to take you to the news. BFM 89.9. That was Hot Love by T-Rex. You're listening to The Morning Run. It's 6.41am on Monday, the 25th of April. I'm Shazana Mokhtar with Philip C. and Wang Xiaoning. It's that time of day where we take a look at what's been making headlines overnight and over the weekend. Who'd like to start us off with what's caught their eye? Yeah, I'll start first. I think I just want to start with a bit of global business news. This was news about Indonesia's move to ban exports of its palm oil starting Thursday this week. And that's going to have a massive impact on the global edit oils and fats market. That's according to our own Deputy Minister of Plantation Industries and Commodities, that is Sri Dr. Weejek Singh. Now, he says that last year, Indonesia accounted for 59% and 56% of world palm oil production and exports, respectively. So, you know, taking that out from the export market is going to have a significant dent on palm oil prices, I suspect, or even upside dent. Yeah, it's, well, there's no dent there's in no its dent, upside. It's, actually, sorry, <laughs> it's my, good for palm oil it's prices. It's good for palm oil prices, but my goodness, the demand will soar for Malaysian palm oil for sure, isn't it? Well, we look at the crude palm oil prices for July delivery. It's already 6,335 ringgit, up 52%. And I think probably when markets open this morning, you can expect another bounce. That's right. That's something to watch. And I think there are a lot of mixed reactions to this policy. Uh, there, there are experts who say that this could harm um, the palm oil industry in general and also threaten the livelihood of small-scale farmers and SMEs in the palm oil sector. I didn't know that 41% of palm oil um, uh, planters are actually smallholders in Indonesia. That's yeah. a massive amount of uh, of the industry. Yeah, it's not as uh, I would say corporatized as it is in Malaysia. Malaysia tends to be a lot of the bigger players have bought up a lot of the plantations over the last 10, 20 years. Less so in Indonesia. Indonesia is a very fragmented plantation sector and also they have these interesting land rules with regards to how much you can plant and how much actually you need to set aside for the smallholders. That's why the percentage is higher. Now, I want to turn our attention to Shanghai and I'm looking at Bloomberg at the moment. So Shanghai has reported its highest number of daily COVID-19 deaths in the current outbreak. So to date, since February, they have registered 87 deaths. But the caseload in Shanghai is quite a bit um, shocking it's because it locked 21,000 new local COVID infections. Okay, the, the vast of them, are, the vast majority of them are mild or asymptomatic. But with numbers like this, it doesn't look like Shanghai is going to be opening anytime soon because they're still maintaining their zero COVID policy. Can you just remind me because we've seen this lockdown story in Shanghai for I think close to two to fourth three weeks. Week. Fourth it's week. Fourth week already. Going yeah. And so you don't yeah. see any containment or improvement in this, right? So will the government eventually have to say, look, these containment measures don't work? And is this really the sign that zero COVID is just not feasible well, at all. they're really, Bloomberg is reporting, frustration among residents have been building due to a lack of access of food or medical care, poor quality government rations and the location of quarantine centres. So apparently there's a lot of frustration and you can actually see that on online yep. users. They rallied to outwit government censors with a video documenting weeks of lockdown in Shanghai which flooded social media. I think well, there is a lot of frustration there and I think the BBC also has an article uh, talking about how suddenly green fences are appearing in front of these buildings of people who are not allowed to leave their uh, apartment complexes. And uh, it's really, I think, there's just a lot of confusion about what it is that they can and can't do um, 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, staying on the China theme, uh, I also saw in the news over the weekend, Australia has accused China of paying bribes to win deals. And I think this was a, an interview with the Australia's defence minister accusing China of paying bribes to win international deal, deals in response to Beijing's newly signed defence pact with the Solomon Islands. This, I think, was a development where over the over the past two, three weeks, I believe Solomon Islands, which is very close to the in the Pacific Rim, I think has worked with China to basically bolster defence. Now, uh, you know, we've been talking a lot about the island of Sri Lanka, a beautiful island that's facing a huge crisis, economic crisis, right? Shortage of uh, forex reserves. Well, the World Bank is readying a Sri Lanka aid package and IMF also says that loan talks are fruitful. So hopefully there is some light at the end of the tunnel of this economy that is going to implode if it doesn't really have the help that it needs. Well, that's very interesting because I think just a couple of weeks ago, Ch- Sri Lanka was also relying on China for funding mm. and debt. And I don't know whether that materialised. But this is the result of the pandemic, isn't it? And also the Russian-Ukraine cl- conflict where you're seeing governments have to deal with the debt crisis. Yeah, so support is needed to provide things like that. We take so much for granted. Cooking gas, basic food supplies, seeds, fertilisers and other essentials. And this is a Reuters report. All right, it's 6.46 in the morning. We're heading into some messages and when we come back, we'll take a look at what's making headlines in our local newspapers and portals this morning. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. That was Sunday Girl by Blondie. Don't we all wish it's Sunday? But it's Monday, the 25th of April, 6.50 in the morning. Philip C., you have your arm raised. I have another 168 hours before we realise we woke up too early. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, Sunday is not my favourite day. It's Friday night. Because then you have the whole weekend to look forward to. Party hard? Yeah, yeah, right, not. (laughs) Well, don't fret. The weekend's not too far off. Don't worry about that. Uh, But I'm Shazana Mokhtar. That was Philip C. And Wong Xiaoning. We're taking a look at what's making headlines in the newspapers and portals this morning. I'd like to start because I think this week we are anticipating the relaxation of some COVID measures. That's what the Prime Minister announced over the weekend. He's looking at three things. Mandatory wearing of masks, scanning the MySajatra app when entering premises, and COVID-19 detection. Tests. I think, Shawning, we've seen newspapers over the weekend and today, right, basically giving commentary about this whole reopening and relaxation plan. Yeah, so I've got the Star and the New Straits Times in front of me, side by side, and I'm comparing the headlines. And this is where I get a bit confused. So, headline in the Star says, too soon to stop mass use, okay? And then the New Straits Times says, right time to relax COVID restrictions. So, which is it? Yeah, I, I think this is, I mean, I heard, I saw that, right? In the star was like, we should definitely keep on wearing masks. But I also see on the same page, I want to see a relaxation on the application of my Sajatra. So I wonder if it's being specific about, oh, some things I agree, some things I don't. So maybe it's a wait and see to see what actually happens when the Prime Minister does announce midweek. And I also noticed different ministers wading into this discussion. So um, the star reports plantation industry and commodities minister, uh, Datuk Zuraida Kamarudin, quoting as saying that mask wearing could be optional after Hari Raya while Kari Jamaluddin who is of course our health minister said on the same day promised an announcement this week even before Raya which is suspected to fall on uh, May the 3rd so who says what? I mean the timing of this announcement to me is I'm not, I'm not I'm not crazy about the timing of the announcement. You're announcing it on the cusp of a major holiday where you know people are going to be traveling. There's going to be so much interstate travel, so many gatherings. I mean, and we don't know what the outcome of all, all this mass sort of celebration, what, how that's going to be. I am personally quite um, cautious in, in wanting to lift any restrictions too soon. 
Yeah, so they have interviewed a few frontliners in the Star article. Uh, many doctors who say that mask wearing should still be considered. Maybe you can relax when it comes to open public spaces, but in social gatherings, it should some it should be something that people should still bear in mind, because COVID nineteen looks like it's here to stay. I think so too. I think so. That's why I think you say the timing is really not appropriate. I think just one more story. I just like to bring attention that came up over the weekend was that a special cabinet committee for protecting vulnerable groups will be set up to safeguard the welfare of these people according to our own Prime Minister that is Sri Ismail Sabri Yaakob. I think this was in response to the case that happened with respect to Bella, right? Where she basically did uh, uh, have some uh, physical abuse uh, at some of the care centres. But it really begs to mind the efficacy of uh, our own Minister of Women, Family and Community Development in addressing this issue, isn't it, Shaz? There's just so many, there are already so many committees, there's so many agencies, and now you need a special cabinet committee to look into this issue. Why isn't the ministry doing it? We need the ministry to yeah. buck up and do what they're mandated to do and, and given the resources to do so because everyone knows that the Social Welfare Department is, is you know, it's understaffed, it's under-resourced. Uh, there, there's so much need in the country and they just don't have all the enough hands and legs to address everything. So the the central question with cabinet committees is, is it a function that people are just not talking to each other, that you need to create these committees to get your point across? Because I do understand that sometimes these issues are cross-ministry, cross-agencies, but why do you need basically to have an elevated committee to facilitate these discussions? Maybe people just like formal meetings. I have no idea. I mean, I don't know whether it's the most practical and fastest way to get anything done. Okay, I'm turning my mind to another attention. Excuse me, I'm turning my attention to another story, and this is in the Edge Weekly, and I like this column, as you all know, is frankly speaking, right? And I think this resonates with me. What they, uh, the idea they're pushing forward, which is to expedite plan to let refugees work. And this is on the back of the Immigration Detention Centre breakout that happened last Wednesday yeah. where 528 Rohingyas escaped in a pre-dawn incident. And I think it, it really does bring to light the difficult questions about refugees and asylum seekers in our midst and why are we so reluctant to let them work? So I, I guess now there's the opportunity because we see such a tight labour market. But again, as per the conversation we had about 30 minutes ago, is it decent? Is it a good job? Yeah, because Malaysia is not party to the 1951 Refugee Convention and its 1967 Protocol. So it's not possible for the government to indefinitely avoid dealing with the human rights issues involved in refugee situations. And this is according to the age. And I think that's, that's a very fair statement. It, it needs to be dealt with as quickly as possible. All right, it's coming up to 6.56 in the morning. We're heading into the 7 a.m. news bulletin. And after that, we come back with a look at how global markets closed last week on Friday. Taking you to the news is Gin Blossoms. Till I hear it from you. Stay with us, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.